Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is your typical radio ad while eating a Crunch Bar. This is Automatic of Auto's Used Cars. This weekend only, we're having a whale. Bring the kids. See for yourself. It is huge. Gonna make a big splash. No other dealer can say they have a whale like this. When things sound dull, turn up the fun with Crunch. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. You Frenchmen, not a contender with having robbed us of everything we held dear, have also corrupted our character. The present condition of my country and my powerlessness to change it are additional reasons for me to leave a land where I am obliged by duty to praise men whom I ought by virtue to hate. When I arrive in my country, how am I to act and what am I to do? When the mother country has ceased to exist, a good citizen should die. If I had to destroy but one man in order to deliver my fellow countrymen, I would start at once. I would plunge the avenging dagger up to the hilt in the breast of the tyrant. So that, Dominic, was uh, Napoleone Buonaparte, writing in 1786 on the very teenage subject of suicide. And Napoleone Buonaparte is, of course, uh, better known as Napoleon Bonaparte. And we are looking at the origins of this titanic figure of French history. But the extraordinary thing is that, of course, he wasn't really French at all, was he? As that brilliant impression has conveyed to the listener. (laughs) Hello, everybody, if you're still listening. Tom, I think that's one of the most extraordinary (laughs) impressions you've ever ever done. Thank you. I think we'll just gloss over the accent completely because it's just, you know, we could be talking for hours. But it's conveying an important point, isn't it? It is. Where he starts, you Frenchman, you've robbed us of everything we held dear. You've corrupted our character. And he talks about my country. And the country he's talking about in that beautiful Italian accent well, it's not Italian, is it? It's Corsican, because the country is Corsica. Yeah, it's a, a, a Ligurian dialect, which I hope the listeners picked up on. Yeah, the, <laughs> our, our Genoese <laughs> listeners. Will. Um, so Napoleon, as you say, a superhuman historical figure. I suppose eclipsed in the public mind now by the dictators of the 20th century, but for so long, he was the paradigmatic great man of history, wasn't yeah. he, Napoleon? For Carlyle. The most titanic figure in 19th century history. Definitely. Though he's basically off the scene by 1815. And sort of overshadows all those paintings, yeah. all those novels, you know, Stendhal's Le Rouge et Le Noir, Tolstoy, War and Peace, 
Napoleon is the cultural figure par excellence of the 19th century, I suppose. Which is why uh, Ridley Scott is uh, making a film about him. Yeah. And of course, we're not in any way jumping on that bandwagon. We would never do that. Never. I mean, I think we've been very conscious of the fact that we haven't really done much about Napoleon on the rest of history. We've done an, an episode on his venture to Egypt, and we've done some episodes on the Battle of Trafalgar, won by his great British counterpart, I suppose, Nelson. Yeah. But considering Napoleon's outsized influence on modern Western history, he's in a neglected area. So we're going to try and make amends today, and we're going to be looking specifically at his origins, aren't we? Yeah. So kind of young Napoleon. Because eventually we'll make our way through all Napoleon's life, but we'll start this week by just looking at the young Napoleon as we once looked at uh, young Churchill. And I guess actually, Tom, that reading that you started with, mm -hmm. which no doubt so many listeners really enjoyed. I'm sure they did. The important thing about that is the Corsicanness. The Corsicanness, I have to confess, like everybody, I kind of knew he was Corsican, but never really thought about how significant it was. Now, it had never occurred to me until doing the reading for these podcasts how colossally important it is that he is not French. Well, there you see, Dominic, I have the advantage of you. I've been to Corsica and I've uh, visited his family house in Ajaxio. Right, yeah. Um, and I've seen for myself the the proud and rugged independence of the Corsican people as <laughs> manifested in the bullet holes that riddle right. any any sign in French on that, on that fair island. Would it be fair to say, Tom, Corsica, land of contrasts? <laughs> It's not really a land of contrasts. I mean, <laughs> no, it's, it's just one thing. It's just one <laughs> faintly terrifying, <laughs> faintly terrifying place. And the hostility to France is still very much there. I mean, so my friend Jamie Muir, yeah. uh, son of Frank Muir, the great comedian, uh, he has a family house out there that, that Frank Muir got. So that's why I went and stayed there. And he was telling me the extraordinary fact that um, the French were planning to test their nuclear program, their atom bombs, Corsica. in the 1950s on Corsica. <laughs> oh, my word. So that would, you, can, you can kind of understand why there's a certain froideur. Yeah. But that's probably not the word. No, there'd be some Italian word. Whatever it is in Genoese yeah. dialect. So let's talk a bit about Corsica first, to put Napoleon in context. So 18th century Corsica. It's, it's a mountainous island, isn't it? Big island, very mountainous. Poor, but proud. <laughs> poor, but proud. Very good. Rugged, independent, poor, and proud. Yes. That's how we like our islands. Yes. Um, and it's kind of pre-feudal, isn't it? So the pe most people don't own anything. Um, they live on kind of chestnuts and cheese. Acorns. Yeah. It's owned by the Republic of Genoa, but the Genoese only are really based on the coast and they don't really go into the interior much. And most of the people, as you said, speak this kind of Ligurian dialect. And when Napoleon's father, so his father is called Carlo Maria Buonaparte, when he was born in 1746, it was still technically Genoese, but the Corsicans had started rising up and having rebellions and stuff, hadn't they? They and have. When, and, it, and the guy who um, is, is the great laureate of this for the rest of Europe is James Boswell, the biographer of yes. uh, Samuel yes. Johnson, um, who refers to them as a brave and free people. And he goes there, and ever after, he, adopt, he goes around, when he goes to balls and things in London, he's always wearing Corsican dress, and he's known as Corsican Boswell. What do Corsicans wear? A proud and rugged and independent and vendetta-loving kind of costume. Right. I can imagine a beret of some kind. Yeah, pistol slipped into a sash, perhaps. Extremely large trousers, I would <laughs> imagine. <laughs> yes. But this is the vibe that's coming off. Is Very that much. For, for kind of lovers of freedom and liberty and all this kind of stuff in the 18th century, Corsica seems like a place that they can fixate on. 
it's kind of a bit like Venezuela for for people in labor under Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah. It's it's a place where you project your fantasies and your your political ideals onto, I think. Yeah, it's the Cuba, isn't it? I suppose is the yeah. parallel. And there's a guy who's the sort of the the Che Guevara or the Fidel Castro who's called Pasquale Paoli. Who Boswell loves and who he gets sent ultimately sent into exile after the French in exit, goes to London and, and Boswell is always taking him off to parties and kind of showing off with him. I had never realized how much he is a model for Napoleon because he called himself the general of the nation. He wanted he had a dream of this kind of new modern Corsican state with a constitution, with um a university, with all kinds of public institutions. That's very enlightenment. It's that com- that combination of kind of nationalism and enlightenment thinking, and the slight hint of the kind of the father of the nation. Yeah, that's very Napoleonic, actually, isn't it? And that's in the sort of seventeen fifties. I mean, interesting. What isn't Napoleonic is that Pasquale comes to be a great admirer of the British Constitution, the kind of a mixed constitution yeah. as it's as known in the eighteenth century. And it's a reminder that before the, the French Revolution, there was this kind of Anglomanie, this obsession with the British example of constitutionalism, which, of course, the French Revolution and then Napoleon will set themselves very much against. against so that yeah. kind of Corsica is a kind of cockpit for that ideological rivalry, which powers the Anglo-French rivalry through the Napoleonic Wars. So anyway, Carlo, Carlo Buonaparte is a massive fan of this guy, Pasquale Paoli. And he sort of teams up with him at various points. Carlo marries this um, very beautiful heiress called Letizia Ramolino, who is 14 years old at the time. I think that gives you an indication of the... The proud and rugged (laughs) approach to... (laughs) Romance. Romance. (laughs) But she's a very impressive woman. And Napoleon always stays absolutely devoted to her, doesn't he? Yeah. He always says, you know, that, that she is the woman who made him what he was. Absolutely. And they have, she has hundreds of children, doesn't she? There's about, how many of them are there? There's about 10 of them or 11 of them. And they all end up kind of kings and (laughs) whatever. They do, which no one could have predicted at the time. So they are married in the late 1764, actually. They're married in 1764. They have their first son, Joseph, in 1768. And in 1768, that's a year, an important year because that is the year that the Genoese have been trying to impose order on Corsica. They basically give up. They owe France loads of money and they say to the French, actually, just have Corsica. You know, we're sick of Corsica. It's a flipping pain. You have Corsica. So the French move in in 1768. Pasquale Paoli is not happy about this, issues a call to arms. He basically gets kicked out and goes off to England. And one of his supporters is Carlo. And he's sort of charging about hither and thither. And it's in the middle of all this turmoil that his wife, who is pregnant with her second son, they almost get swept away by a torrent or something, some very kind of Greek myth style <laughs> story. It's very Corsican. Very, and the 15th of August, 1769, she has this baby who they christen Napoleone. It was a not uncommon name in Corsica. Sometimes it was spelt Nabulione or Lapulione. I think Lapulione is a terrible name for a uh, for, for an early 19th century master of Domineering Europe. Domineering master of Europe. No, you couldn't, couldn't do that. But what Carlo does that is really important is once the French have come in, he accommodates himself to the French, doesn't he? He goes off and gets basically a fake title, a nobility title that allows him to become a lawyer. But also, of course, Dominic, in the long run, will enable his sons to benefit from 
the kind of education that only the nobles can have. Exactly. Actually, I said 11 children. I've just looked at my notes. It's 13 children. Wow. Three of them died young, two in childbirth, so loads of them. So he sucks up to the French. And Napoleone, the second son, he grows up in this occupied Corsica, effectively. Um, he doesn't go to school, Tom. Um, I thought he did. Well, there's, his mother said later that she'd sent him to lessons at a girls' school, and Napoleon obviously was keen to downplay this. But there's some story at school that they have to role-play the Romans and the Carthaginians. Is that not later in France, though? Or is that in Oh, was it? I think it must be later in France. Oh, okay. Oh, maybe. Because apparently no, there's some no, priest. It's Joseph describes it's Joseph who describes and says it was at, at their first school in Corsica. So I don't know. I mean, there, clearly there are there are lots of different different stories that are swirling around. Depending on which biography you read, you'll have different credence placed on different anecdotes. So he refuses to sit under to play the Carthaginian role because he wants to play the Roman one. Oh, and there that, must right. be back projection there because yeah. of course the, the French will come to identify themselves with the Romans and they will identify the British with the Carthaginian. So probably not a true story, but I I, I don't know. And I think it is clear when you read all the kind of the various accounts that. There are multiple, multiple stories, yeah. many of which have kind of mythic qualities. So what we do know about him is he's, um, he's growing up in Ajaxio. He's one of this part of this huge family. Uh, it's extremely poor. They're not, a, they're not a particularly poor family. They have aspirations. They're an aspirational kind of upwardly mobile family. But it is generally a violent kind of scratchy kind of upbringing, isn't it? Adam Zamoyski in his book says he would have seen French mobile columns burning the countryside, slaughtering the flocks of rebels. He would have seen um, the corpses of rebels hung on the public highway as a warning to those who defied the imposition of French rule. And he himself seems to, I mean, the one thing that all the accounts of Napoleon as a little boy say is that he's extremely aggressive and quarrelsome, and also that he liked reading, Tom. I think that's the one thing that's kind of attractive about him. Yes, he's a massive autodidact, isn't he? Definitely he is, yeah. And very obsessed by uh, ancient history. He loves reading about the Romans and the he's Greeks. He's always, always reading about that. So, in a way, very like, much like me. <laughs> <laughs> is that like you, Tom? You grew up in the Badlands of Wiltshire and uh, yes. another poor, backward, rural community. Yeah, poor but proud. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, Napoleon, we said he was born in 1769. In 1778, when he is nine years old, uh, his father, Carlo, decides that he really wants him to go to a military academy. So the military academy is, you know, it's the uh, an obvious engine for kind of um, social mobility. You'll join the army and you'll move upwards. Yeah, but also to learn French, which yes. at this point he barely speaks. And the amazing thing is, is that when he goes away to, uh, to join this military academy, I mean, he's then away from Corsica for eight years. Yeah, so January 1779... His father has got permission for him to go to academy in France, but he starts off going to a school in Autun um, to learn French before he can embark on this military career. And despite the fact that he's, you know, presumably having this fairly intensive course, he never ever learns to speak French particularly well. I read from Adam Zamoyski, his grammar and use of words remain poor. Um, his accent is always a very strong Corsican accent. His handwriting never developed beyond an ugly scrawl. It's a real surprise to me, actually, because the depictions of him that you have are always, you can imagine him as a Frenchman, and he's always portrayed as a Frenchman. But the idea of him as an outsider, who's actually always speaking to other Frenchmen in this very thick Corsican accent, yeah, 
it it sort of changes your view of him, I think, a bit, doesn't it? Because you, the emphasis on him as an outsider is something that's often missing, I would say, from accounts of Napoleon. Yeah, well, I think also that, as listeners will see from this episode, that tension between the Corsican, which focuses the memories of his earliest years, and then this eight-year period of education, which begins with him having to do a kind of crammer course in French, yeah. This is a struggle that that won't ultimately be resolved until the end of episode two. No, because at this point, he definitely identifies himself as a Corsican. He goes to these, a succession of military academies. I mean, we could be all here for weeks going through military academy after military academy, but they're all very austere, aren't they? They're all run on almost slightly monastic lines where you kind of get up. Well, literally, because the teachers are, mo- are friars and monks. Yeah, And when we call them military academies, that's actually slightly misleading. Because you sort of think they're just studying guns and stuff, but actually they're not. They're spending all they're their studying time studying ancient history. Yeah, but also maths. Because he turns out to be brilliant at maths, doesn't he? He is. He is. Which never endears people to me, actually, if I'm honest. <laughs> but uh, but this is important because a mastery of maths leads you into the artillery. Yeah, which is where Napoleon will ultimately go. To begin with, he wants to join the navy, which is yeah quite something. Could he have been on the deck of whatever it was at yeah, Trafalgar, uh, Trafalgar or... instead of Villeneuve facing Nelson? I mean, his education is full of kind of ironies like that. So Andrew Roberts in his biography has the tremendous detail that um, on the very last pages of his school exercise book, following a long list of British imperial possessions, he noted Sainte-Hélène, Petite Île. Yeah, I of saw course, that. it's that little island of St. Helena that um, Napoleon will end up on. The list of classical authors that he read is extraordinary. Caesar, Cicero, Suetonius, Tacitus. Uh, he read Erasmus. Plutarch was his great favorite. And Plutarch, of course, is a titanic figure in the 18th century because Plutarch writes this idea of great lives, great people who shape history. That clearly entered into Napoleon's soul. But there's a kind of romance to him as well because he loves the fake kind of Gaelic poet Ossian. Did you see that, Tom? I did. Yeah, of course. Everyone everyone did in the 18th century. Completely made up. Fingal, isn't it? Yes. Completely made up. So he's um he's a he's a blend of kind of proto-romantic, nationalistic, and obviously enlightenment thinking, because he's also reading New Voltaire's and New Russo's and all these kinds of things. Um so he goes from one academy to the other. By 1784, he's at the École Militaire. Oh, Dominic, we mustn't forget to mention the um the snow fight, the snowball fight, which is so not true. <laughs> Not true, but but important because um, it feeds massively into the myth. So it's one of the key scenes in Abel Gans's great film about Napoleon, yeah. black and white film. And it, it kind of goes on for about 20 minutes. <laughs> and according to the, the legend, Napoleon seizes control of this snowball fight. It goes on for two weeks. You know, he ranges his snowball fighters into platoons and divisions and they storm hills and things like this and obviously it's completely made up but it is a kind of interesting example of the again of the the way in which napoleon's future career is back projected into his education and the the kind of the mythology that grows up around his childhood yeah i think that's absolutely right so much of it's hard to discern the true napoleon in some ways because so so many of the sources are written later yeah and as you say are kind of inventing this heroic past him i mean the one thing we know about him as a boy i mean what does he know He's a teenager, 15, 16 or so. One of his contemporaries said later that he was uh, uncommunicative, fond of solitude, capricious, arrogant, and extremely (laughs) self-centered. Much of the time, he appeared to be in a world of his own, pacing up and down, lost in thought, gesticulating or laughing to himself. (laughs) That's very like me as a teenager. (laughs) Really? 
Maybe I didn't become dictator of Europe. No, you didn't. You became. No. What, what did you become? I took an alternative. I became a, a podcaster, Tom. One of Britain's leading podcasters, Tom. That's how I describe you. Yeah. Um, one of. Anyway, um, his big cause, though, is Corsica. He's obsessed with Corsica. And clearly, this is, this is brought out by being in France. Yeah. All his biographers say he's almost certainly bullied at school by the other boys because of his Corsican accent, because he's quite, quite short, he's sallow. You know, his skin is darker. He speak, you know, he doesn't speak good French. All of this stuff. He's a loner by nature and a reader, and just a difficult kind of abrasive person. Spiky. I mean, I suppose a boy in that situation, you've you've got two options, haven't you? Either you 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 jettison your Corsican heritage completely, and you absolutely erase all sense of not being French, or you accentuate your Corsicanness. You embrace what is making you bullied. Yeah. And he obviously goes for the the second option. Yes, he does. I mean, he's good. He's a good student, isn't he? He does well. He proceeds through the different academies. In 1785, he sits the exam for the artillery. There are 58 candidates, and he comes 42nd, which sounds rubbish. But actually, almost all the other candidates had done years more preparation than him. So it's a pretty good result for somebody who hasn't done as much prep and isn't even French. And he's posted second lieutenant to a prestigious regiment, the Regiment of La Faire, which is stationed in, in Valence, kind of in the sort of southwest central France. And actually, for somebody who's so disputatious and difficult, he's actually got on pretty well. He's a great reader. He's very serious. He's not set for a glittering career, but he's set for a decent career as long as he stays French, because there's still a possibility of him being drawn, sucked into the world of kind of Corsican nationalism. His father has died, and Pasquale Pauli, who's still hanging around in London talking to Boswell and sort of drawing up plans for Corsican universities. Brushing his enormous moustaches. Exactly. <laughs> He's still out there, and Napoleon worships him. One of his biographers says he, he, he turns Pauli into this sort of invented father figure. And actually, his first essay that survives is a history of Corsica. He's always writing histories of Corsica, essays about Corsica, Gothic novels set in Corsica, all these kind of weird things. I mean, I think to anyone who's been a history-obsessed adolescent boy, he's not an entirely unrecognisable type. Very moody, very very kind of intellectually arrogant. Tom, are you describing yourself or are you describing... No, well, I just kind of, you know, anyone listening who has been an adolescent boy yeah. would find perhaps elements of Napoleon not entirely unrecognisable. And that is simply to say yeah. that I don't think there's anything particularly about him at this point that marks him out as you know a man of destiny or anything. No, no, no. I agree with you about that. If he was around now, he would be putting up earnest conversations on YouTube. You know, He'd be on TikTok, all that kind of stuff. But you know what, Tom? Very moody and... He's, he's all that's worst about teenagers. <laughs> I think. I think he. I mean, I think he is. Thinking about the difference in him and the other great character that we've done, his youth in great detail, which is Churchill. Churchill was ridiculous as a teenager going around saying, I will save the empire and all that sort of stuff. But Churchill was funny and he was a bulliant and you could imagine he was a great laugh and he was very likable. All Napoleon's school contemporaries say of him, he was actually awful. He was really <laughs> dislikable. He was very, yeah. had no sense of humor. 
you know, he's always oh, trying leave to have me fights. Alone. Yeah, or having fights with people and just a difficult. Why does no one recognize my genius? Yeah. Very much that kind of thing. As a teenager, he started writing gothic novels. Yeah, of course he did. I mean, of course. That's exactly what you'd expect. He wrote a book called Le Comte d'Essex. Yeah. A, a book about um, <laughs> uh, uh, Andrew Roberts. I couldn't help but think about your vampire novels, Tom, because Andrew mm. Roberts quotes a bit of it. The fingers of the countess sank into gaping wounds. Her fingers dripped with blood. She cried out, hid her face, but looking up, could see nothing. Terrified, trembling, aghast, cut to the very quick by these terrible forebodings, the countess got into a carriage and arrived at the tower. Let he who has never written a gothic melodrama in his youth cast <laughs> right. the first stone, Dominic. However, I think I do think we're being a little bit unfair, though, because, um, as I say, he's also tremendously good at maths. That's worse. No, it isn't, because it gets him his posting in the artillery regiment, and this is actually quite a big deal. So... Yeah, you know, we shouldn't ignore the fact that he does have the prospect of a, of a pretty glittering career ahead of him. I mean, it's not kind of astounding, but relative to you know what he could have ended up doing, it's pretty impressive. Agreed. So we should put that on the record. So he's there. We get to the late seventeen eighties. France has run into terrible financial trouble, as we've discussed when we did the podcast about the Seven Years' War and indeed about the American Revolution. France has exhausted its finances both through mismanagement and massive structural problems, but through a succession of wars, this, this great competition with Britain for mastery of the oceans, for mastery of the Americas, and so on and so forth. And Napoleon, he's sitting around in his regiment in Valence, and he is actually, his great dream is to write a history of Corsica. And that's what he's doing while the French political body politic is being kind of roiled by all these ructions. Louis XVI recalls the Estates General. France is sort of a, it's a stupid comparison, but France is equivalent to Parliament to try and sort out its financial woes. Napoleon is delighted at that because he thinks a liberalization of the French constitution will give more autonomy to Corsica. But also I think he, is, he has decided that he's a Republican already, hasn't yes. he? Yes, yeah, he is, because he's been reading Rousseau yeah. and he's been reading lots of Enlightenment stuff. Your comparison with him and modern teenagers on YouTube or TikTok, you know, he has imbibed, as people do now, as people do at any point in history, he has imbibed all the fashionable ideas of the, of the day. Yeah. And, you know, he's, he's sort of pumped up with all this stuff. Um, he's, very, he's always writing these things about... Um, liberty and stuff. But interestingly, he's still at this point, 1789, he sees the French as the villains. So he writes to Pasquale Paoli, who's in London, and he says, this is 1789, and he says, I'm very keen to write a, a history of Corsica. And in his letter, he says, I was born as our fatherland was perishing. My eyes opened to the odious sight of 30,000 Frenchmen who had been vomited onto our shores, drowning the throne of liberty in rivers of blood. Very kind of teenage prose, but so interesting that at this late stage, he still sees the French as the oppressors and Corsica as his kind of motherland and Corsica as his future. He does. But at the same time, when the Bastille is, is stormed in um, July 1789, I mean, he's still engaged in French politics, isn't he? Because he's the only, I think he's the only gra artillery graduate of his year who, who actually supports what's going on. And when lots of his contemporaries in the artillery start fleeing, he doesn't actually flee. I mean, he does go back to Corsica, but he's not yeah. going into exile. So I think this, there is a sense in which he can feel the excitement of, of this incipient revolution 
and isn't completely abandoning it, but is seeing it as a way. I mean, I suppose, you know, the idea of liberty and fraternity is something that he can apply to Corsica. And so the question, I suppose, for, for, for Napoleon is, can you square this circle? Can you be simultaneously a Frenchman who supports the revolution exactly. and a nationalist in Corsica? And um, this is the huge issue that will determine the course of his life in, in, in the long run. And we should return to that issue, Tom, after the break. Shall. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. At Outback Steakhouse, your wish is our command. Back by popular demand, steak and lobster at a special price starting at $19.99. Come enjoy our bold centre-cut sirloin seasoned with our signature blend of 17 spices and paired with a buttery, succulent lobster tail. Hurry into Outback Steakhouse where your steak and lobster wishes come true at a price you can't miss. Steak and lobster starting at $19.99. No rules, just right. Is it time to change your approach and switch to Air Supra, albuterol budesonide? Now you can virtually connect with a doctor to discuss your options and see if it's time to make a change. If appropriate, you may even be able to get a prescription for Air Supra the same day. Talk to a doctor today and see if Air Supra is right for you. Visit airsupraconnect.com to connect with a provider. Hello, welcome back to The Rest is History. We're looking at the young Napoleon. And Dominic, in the first half, we were looking at his various kind of teenage boy attitudes, his occasional feelings of self-pity, his identification with all kinds of romantic uh, causes, his um, growing enthusiasm for the revolution, his sense of being um, a Corsican and whether that might lead him into overt anti-French nationalism. So a great cauldron, Dominic a cauldron of, of emotions and uh, thoughts. Uh, but of course, teenage boys, uh, one other thing that um, very often they're interested in yeah. is uh, girls. Yes. So what's going on with, down there, as it were? All right, down there. Thank you, Tom. Um, he is not a man for the ladies, actually, it's fair to say. So you can well imagine that a lot of the, the blokes in these military academies are kind of sneaking out and having assignations and things like that. Napoleon, everybody says about him, when they do go to sort of salons and things like that, he cuts a very unattractive figure. Well, he's kind his, of scrawny and scruffy, isn't he? He's very scruffy. His sort of hair is like lank and kind of hanging down. Yeah. He's, he's olive-skinned where they're, they are paler. He has a thick accent. And his first encounter, which I know you, you greatly enjoyed, reading about is a very strange and unprepossessing one, isn't it? 1787, I think. Yeah. So he's in Paris. He goes to see a play and he comes out and he describes himself in kind of classic tones. My soul, agitated by the vigorous sentiments natural to it, made me bear the cold with indifference. But when my imagination cooled, I began to feel the rigors of the season and made for the arcades. And arcades is where prostitutes are hanging out. And he meets with a, a young girl and he's obviously wants to do what 
chap wants to do with a prostitute, I guess. But also he feels inhibited about it, partly, I guess, because of nerves, but also because he has this whole Rousseau attitude, La Nouvelle Eloise, of high-minded, it's all about emotion and, you know, the mingling of souls and all this stuff. So there's a lot of kind of Rousseau-ish type conversation with this poor girl who clearly, you know, yeah. doesn't want all this kind of conversation. Um, and uh, yeah, it's all kind of weird. And he writes it up in a, a kind of slightly odd way. He does. He writes like an essay about it and he admits that basically yeah. he's talking to her for ages and just wittering on about, you know, abstract nouns. And she's basically saying, come on, let's crack on. She does. She says to him, listen, we could warm ourselves and you can satisfy your fancy. And he goes back and in this whole description that he writes, he doesn't describe at all what happens after they go back. So there's a kind of, his biographers say there's all, there was always a kind of prudishness, priggishness, puritanism to him. I, guess, I think it's, it's um, the kind of 18th century cult of the, of the sentiment, isn't it? I suppose so, yeah. James Boswell never had this, these kinds of problems. No, Tom. he didn't. Uh, but I mean, I imagine there is a kind of awkwardness, a gaucheness that he dresses up in these fine-sounding si- fine enlightenment tones. But yeah. again, he's not the kind of commanding titanic figure oh no not of destiny who you might think at this point he's no, still very kind of shy very awkward insecure i guess you'd say yeah which i mean we can be lenient tom given that he is an outsider yeah he's a teenager he's you don't have to judge him too harshly for all those kinds of things anyway back to the the revolution i mean he doesn't know it's going to be the french revolution i guess we're only the storming the bastille lots of his um Fellow officers, as you say, they scram. They're horrified. Yeah, they're mutiny and stuff. Even at this early stage, it's so interesting that his first instinct is to go back to Corsica, and he returns to Ajaccio at the end of September 1789, and he finds, and this will be a theme throughout this episode, the rest of this episode, he finds Corsica basically in total and utter chaos because French rule has never been entirely accepted by all the Corsicans, has it? Yeah, and some of the Corsicans are sending, there's a man called, with the unfortunate name of Buttafoco. Yes, I wondered whether you would be mentioning him. So Matteo Buttafoco, he's the representative of the nobility, and he is sent off to say to France to say, um, can we have a bit more self-rule? Other people want great integration into France. But meanwhile, I mean, that's just the sort of the surface political stuff. And underneath it, there's all these different clans and factions kind of fighting for control of the of the island. His brother, Joseph, who is on Corsica, has helped set up a patriotic committee, at which he's the secretary. Napoleon himself goes around handing out tricolor cockades. You see, which is fascinating, isn't it? Because that is, of course, revolutionary. Yeah. He's not, at this point, an overt nationalist. And yet, clearly, he's doing it for nationalist reasons. Yeah. And I think it would be a mistake to kind of impose too much a sense that he has clear thoughts on this. Yeah, I think that's right. I suspect that it's his kind of emotions that are leading him. A bit, I mean, a bit like with, you know, when he's meeting with the prostitute and he's disguising kind of confusion beneath the show of fine language. I imagine he's doing the same with this, really. Absolutely right. That impulse is controlling him at this point. The other thing about France is that I think he defines France at different times in different ways. So sometimes he sees France as the colonial power, the colonial power that is oppressing Corsica. But other times he obviously thinks of France as almost like a universal idea. Well, this is the great thing, isn't it, of the revolution, is that the ideals of the revolution are framed as being universal yeah, and therefore applicable not just to metropolitan France, but exactly. to Corsica as well. So it's interesting that as he's giving out these tricolor cockades, 
you know, the colors, the red, white, and blue of France. He is also still writing his Corsican history book, Tom, which he <laughs> claims that the Corsicans are the heirs of the Romans. And he also writes this mad thing. He writes, this is a short story he wrote. He writes a short story about an old man in Corsica who it's revealed his mother, the old man's mother, was raped and murdered by French soldiers. And the old man, in a sort of death wish sort of style scenario, takes revenge on every Frenchman he meets and, and boards a ship and kills everybody on the French ship, including the cabin boy. Yeah. We dragged their bodies to our altar and there burned them all. The new incense seemed to please the deity. God. Yeah. Which, of course, again, is simultaneously very, you know, Corsican vendetta, all that kind of stuff. But is also looking forward to the terror. Yeah. And the idea of blood and violence as being pleasing to, you know, the goddess of reason or whatever. Yeah. So confusing times for a young lad. The whole thing about Corsica is so chaotic and anarchic. So by 1790, he's still there. Um, they've sent a letter. He has actually composed a letter that ends up being read out in the French National Assembly, um, which is effectively asking for Corsica to be fully integrated into the French nation. Which is weird, isn't it? Because he's writing that at the same time as he's writing his, you know, genocidal fantasy about killing right. Frenchmen. It's, as you say, it's so confused and chaotic. He gets his brother elected to the General Assembly in Corsica, and they're sort of having gang fights with other Corsicans. Then this guy, Pasquale Paoli, he makes a triumphant return to Corsica in the summer of 1790. Napoleon makes sure he's there in Ajaxio to welcome him. He's in the crowds. He and his brother Joseph and all their friends and some of the other brothers, they're part of patriotic clubs in Ajaxio. They're giving speeches. He's kind of roistering around the streets, having fights. He's also engaging in class warfare, isn't he? Because he, he writes a lettre à butterfucko. <laughs> right. You did that with far too much relish. And I think that the listeners <laughs> will see through you. No, not at all. Not at all. Butterfucko, of course, is the representative of the nobility. Yeah. And by this point in 1790, the revolution in Paris is gaining speed. And so that element of class warfare is spreading yeah. to Corsica. And the Corsicans seem rarely to need any incentive to to engage in <laughs> fractious street no. fighting. But now they have a kind of additional motive. So it really is kind of chaos. They spend 1791, 1792, endlessly going back to France and back to Corsica, kind of splitting. Well, because he's still, in the, he's still in the army, right? He's still in the army, and he can't stay away for too long because basically he'll be a, a, a deserter. A deserter, and as the pressure rises within France, especially when the war breaks out with France's neighbours, he won't just be a deserter, he'll be a traitor. So there's that beginning to hang over him. Yeah, because all the um, the other officers have, have literally fled abroad and are starting to make common cause with France's enemies in an attempt to restore the monarchy. Yeah, so June 1791, a key moment in the revolution. We'll be coming back to the French Revolution, uh, hopefully the middle of next year, won't we, Tom? To, to mark the Paris Olympics. Uh, my, <laughs> I think there'd be nothing more fun than doing a whole series about the, the worst excesses <laughs> of, of the terror. Um, so this key moment, the king... Louis XVI decides he's going to try and flee the country, get out of France, it's all gone wrong, and he is intercepted at Varennes near the border with the Austrian Netherlands, now Belgium, and he is brought back. And that's a moment when the paranoia of the revolution, the sense of kind of incipient looming violence, really ratchets up. 
And at this point, the stakes are getting higher and higher. So a false move from Napoleon, if he allies himself with the wrong faction, things in course can completely spill out of control. You know, it's no longer just a teenager playing at politics. He could lose his life if, if things don't work out. And actually, after multiple trips, he's back in Ajaxio in April 1792. And there are lots of murders going on. There is fighting. He ends up in a sort of massive brawl in the streets. And Pasquale Paoli, who's been very fond of him up to this point, because he's seen him as a fan, basically, starts to kind of wash his hands with the Bonapartes and thinks that whole family are much more trouble than they're worth. This is what happens, he says, when inexperienced little boys are placed in command of the National Guards. So at that point, about 1792, I would say Napoleon's position in Corsica, where he had fancied himself as one of Pasquale Paoli's kind of nationalist coming coming men, is actually beginning to slip out of control, that he's losing traction in Corsica. But Dominic, isn't there also an additional danger for Napoleon that the French representative in Corsica is very unamused by Napoleon's activities and actually writes to the war ministry in Paris saying essentially that he's, you know, he's a traitor, that he should be dismissed. And so this is very alarming for Napoleon. So when he, in the summer of 1792, goes back to Paris, he has that kind of hanging over him, the worry about what people in the war ministry are going to be making of this. Yeah. But fortunately, he arrives in, in Paris, goes to the war ministry and discovers that it's absolute chaos there as well. And that if the letters arrive, you know, certainly no one has read it. Yeah, because the letter says that whole family, the family has no merit other than spying, treachery, vice, impudence, and prostitution, which is a harsh thing to say about somebody's family. But as you say, yeah, the woman's just in chaos because France is suddenly at war with its neighbours. And he is actually, on the 20th of June, 1792, very French behaviour, is met up with a friend for, for lunch, for a long lunch at a, local brasserie and when they come out they see this huge crowd descending on the Tuileries on the palace and this is the moment when the crowd this mob forces the king who's basically now a prisoner under kind of palace arrest to put on the red cap of liberty and Napoleon sees this it's really interesting because you said he was a Republican he is a Republican but he's also always an autocrat He's a believer in strong, ruthless government, I think. Well, he believes in order, doesn't he? He does believe in order because he says... he's a military man. So, I mean, his whole education has instilled that in him. And he says of the king, and it's so interesting that he says this in Italian, not in French, he says, Che coglione, what a jerk, what a fool to be so weak as to be forced by the mob to put on this, this kind of red cap. And then almost two months later, Napoleon, he's at his lodgings, and he hears the sound of the toxin ringing. And he comes down to the street and he sees this huge mob rampage down the street with the head of a man on a pike. And they're shouting, Vive la nation, vive la nation. And actually what has happened is the mob has attacked the Tuileries Palace. They have forced the king and his family to flee to the assembly for safety. And they have butchered all the defenders of the palace. And Napoleon, who despises the king, walks through the palace afterwards, the gardens, and the gardens are strewn with dead bodies of the Swiss guards and the nobles who were trying to defend the king. And there are still people there, as one of his biographers says, finishing off the wounded and mutilating their bodies in obscene ways. And Napoleon is horrified by this, but what horrifies him is not so much the violence as the disorder, isn't it, Tom? This sort of anarchy, which he dreads. I saw even quite well-dressed women commit the most extreme indecencies on the bodies of the Swiss guard. So I think you can imagine what they're doing. Yeah, And you're right that this in in no way is an expression of sympathy for 
for the king. And when the mob corner him and demand that he he cries vive la nation, he he says, well, I did this very happily. Of course I, I did. But I think it's, as you say, it's contempt for the mob, the canaille, he despises it because you have to have order and discipline. So he's an authoritarian Jacobin. You know, it's quite a recognizable type. Yeah. He's very, very definitely a Robespierreist. I mean, he is definitely on the far left of the revolutionary movement. But at the same time, he's very, very authoritarian and thinks that there needs to be discipline and structure and control. And it's about this point, would you say, so the Corsicanness is beginning to, it never fades completely. He's still always Corsican, but he's no longer trumpeting it as he did before because he's perhaps found a new cause. Do you think that's... I think he has, yeah. I think he has in the, in the revolution at this point. Yeah. Presumably at the back of his mind, and this will become very evident in the part two when we look at what happens over the next few years, he must be aware of the fact that the clearing away of so many aristocrats from the army has opened up a lot of space for a young man on the make like himself. Yeah. And that if only he can prove his value to the French Republic, you know, there is great scope for very, very rapid promotion of a kind that there simply wouldn't have been 10 years before. Well, that seems like the perfect point on which to um, bring this episode to a close, Tom. So we have this young man. What is he? 24, 25? Not even that. Who is driven, ambitious, very prickly, spiky. Pretty humorless. Very humorless. I mean, there's no trace of humor whatsoever. Spends his time writing these gothic vampire novels or whatever it is. He's um, writing his history of Corsica. Tom, the parallels are absolutely yeah. extraordinary, aren't they? Well, Man of destiny. If circumstances have been different, who knows where I might be? Exactly. On an but island in the Atlantic. I will say this. Sometimes I do tease you on this podcast, but you have a, you have a very lively sense of humour. I think it is fair to say. Oh, you're too kind, Dominic. Um, as was evidenced by that excellent reading at the beginning of the episode, which I think a lot of people will want to immediately go back and listen to again <laughs> because they enjoyed it so much. Well, so uh, we will have another reading in our next episode. <gasps> you're spoiling us. Which will be coming out on Thursday. But if you want to hear the next reading, which will be done in a different accent, so making a kind of intriguing biographical point, you could, if you wanted to join the Rest is History Club, you could hear it straight away. But if not, we will see you on Thursday for uh, the next installment of our special on Young Napoleon. So we will see you then. Bye-bye. Au revoir. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, US Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics US, brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? 
Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts.